watching all movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here, Here comes, comes the binge. binge. Happy Pride, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of the Binge Movie Podcast, in which a couple of homos usually review the latest movie theater releases, but not this week. I am Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Olarte. And today we have a very special Pride episode where Jason and I discuss... Um, some of the movies that really influenced us and were important to us, queer movies, mm-hmm. um, that uh, were influential either in our coming out mm-hmm. um, and or still impact us today. Yes. Uh, these are movies that uh, were signs of life to us in one way or another uh, because of the specific time and places in which we grew up. And that time will become very clear because there's a pretty median year uh, of these films we're going to be talking about with you guys. We've each selected three, uh, which was a challenge. Was that difficult for you to narrow it down to three? Um, hmm. Yeah, sort of. There were definitely more. I feel like, if anything, there I felt like there were more movies I wanted to revisit that I felt Mm. were important at the time, but I haven't uh, haven't seen in a while. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I feel like I there are a lot of things that I've missed. And I also feel like I haven't watched a lot of, uh, like after this particular time period um, where these movies all fall into, which mm-hmm. is between 1995 and 2000. Yeah. Um, I haven't either made the effort to see queer movies or there hasn't been. Yeah. Uh, I think that, I mean, I, I would say I've continued to, to watch them. And I think that what's unique about the nineties and queer movies that came out in the nineties is that that was such a pivotal era in terms of uh, a breakthrough for queer representation in pop culture. Because mm. it wasn't until the 90s you had actual, you know, famous people coming out and mm-hmm. defined publicly as gay. And there was such um, there was such a surge of, of, of queer stories being told uh, in the 90s, which is not to take anything away from the tremendous courage of the films that came out before the 90s that Absolutely. were openly about queer stories, like, you know, Torch Song Trilogy, Parting Glances... Um, some of this will come up in one of the films that I'll talk about a bit later, but the nineties were really a kind of a watershed moment for queer stories. And for also, it coincided with the rise of indie cinema. Yes. Absolutely. Um, becoming more and more of a thing that actually was, um, becoming its own industry mm-hmm. that was somewhat more commercially viable and more visible mm-hmm. than it had been previously. Uh, and so all in all, it was a really good time to be uh, to be a sort of a queer kid coming up and seeing these opportunities for representation. Uh, and it was such a strange kind of specific moment um, coming up then because there was there was the Internet, but mm. but not a lot. No. So we had the Internet as of like 94 five-ish yeah like yeah you know. depending on like where you lived and yeah what your family was able to right. have and my family did not have the internet until you left for college how about you um we definitely did the aol thing mm. um before i went to college so in the middle 90s i probably started doing it around 95 yeah but you know there was a lot i definitely wasn't uh, aware of everything on the internet. No, right? no, and, not, and of course, and it was not then what it is today. Sure, yeah, um, far from it. Uh, you just had to have your AOL keywords ready, yeah. and just do your best. But like, I feel like historically, of course, the advent of the internet will be probably like top ten biggest changers of all civilization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so to fire <laughs> the internet, sliced bread. Sliced bread, yeah, <laughs> and Netflix. Um, but uh, 
you know, it was, it was, you know, what a time to be, uh, you know, trying to find yourself and trying to find things that reflect yourself back to you, mm-hmm. looking for some sign that you're not alone, looking for, I mean, because when you're a teenager, you know, there are so many different p- things you're looking for. Um, but one of the things is things that will help sort of flesh out your personality, your identity, who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, if you have any sense of being an other, an outsider, mm-hmm. You look for things that make you feel less alone, um, especially if you grow up in places like Rebecca and I did, right? <laughs> which were not places um, where there were lots of queer things. Right. Yeah. Small towns in the Midwest. Um, you know, it, it may have been a different situation if you grew up somewhere like uh, New York or here in San Francisco. I mean, there mm-hmm. really are very few other places and most people probably grew up in places like we did. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I think that's why. These these movies, even though, so I will say, the movies I'm going to talk about today, I have not rewatched in a long time and could, mm-hmm. in fact, be terrible. <laughs> I don't think they're terrible. They might be. I would really um, like to rewatch. I rewatched one last night, mm-hmm. uh, but the other two, I I feel pretty solid that I'm yeah. still going to stand behind them. Um, one, one I might want to revisit, and I probably think it's a little bit more silly now, mm. but... Um, I feel pretty solid about mine, too, uh, and, you know, I was just looking them up online to do some research because... Rebecca and I sat down and we're about to get going and then we were like, mm, we actually haven't done any research at all on these movies we're about to talk about today. <laughs> right so with the gut. Let's just take a minute. Let's just take a, let's take a beat. Look these up. Make sure we can talk about them with any sort of authority whatsoever <laughs> and not be like, in any way, what happens and what's his face? I don't know. <laughs> it was good. Um, I remember it being good. Moving on. Uh, but these movies, these were life-saving movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though, you know, now there is like, you know, through internet, there is... So there are so many more ways to find people who are like-minded and Mm -hmm. to feel less alone. That doesn't make representation any less of a life-saving thing for anyone who feels or is being categorized as other. Mm -hmm. Uh, But these were the movies that were those for us uh, when we were, uh, when we were coming up and, uh, and, you know, did you like, where would you go to find queer culture when you were a teenager? So I'm trying to think of these movies in particular. Um, um, uh, there was a, a theater in Cleveland called the Cedar Lee, mm-hmm. uh-huh, and they always played um, the art house films. And I yeah. would definitely get their calendar and just you know go through it and try to figure out what was going to be the next the next thing to watch. As a teenager, you would go to the Cedar Lee. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. would you like? Did you have a car? Uh, I did. I had a car um, in when I was sixteen. Well, excuse me. <laughs> so upscale. Uh, yeah, it was very fancy. Oh I had the internet and a car. Um, you know, this is really riding too, high. Too bougie for my blood. <laughs> I was thinking about this recently, um, like the life saving, uh, the life saving purpose of representation. When recently Ellen was awarded, uh, was recognized for it being like the anniversary of the coming yeah, out episode right. of the Ellen Show. Twenty years. Um, and although I wouldn't say I've you know kept up with Ellen in her new daytime talk world, uh, mm. but when that episode came out, Oof. I can't even. Like, I feel like I need to like rewatch it. Uh, and really try to remember how I felt at that time because it it changed so much. Uh, seeing that on on regular network television was just mm-hmm. like, I was like it, the the doors been opened. Um, yeah. We we can't go back now. Like people people know. Yeah. And it's it's it might kind of be okay. I remember that night vividly, vividly mm. watching that episode because I remember afterward. ABC News aired some sort of special where Diane Sawyer or somebody was talking mm-hmm. about um, the struggle of queer youth. 
So they immediately pivoted to that as like a news angle. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm a struggling queer youth. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no one asked me anything. I know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it was such a funny thing in the 90s where it seemed like it was almost entirely um, queer women who were coming mm-hmm. forward and coming out. Um, you know, from like, I mean, they're sort of punchline but Melissa Etheridge and Katie Lang mm-hmm. each coming out was huge. Yep. Um, you know, like they were absolute trailblazers. And then Ellen and, you know, and they each just had, you know, so much courage to do that because Ellen, you know, come, came out just probably, I don't know, two years, three years after Roseanne had an episode where Mariel Hemingway kissed mm-hmm. her and it was like boycotted and burned in like half the country and like yep. refused to air and all these affiliates. And it was like a kiss that wasn't even really shown, Mm-mm. but it was that big of a deal. So granted, Ellen did come out without kissing anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that was also an issue with Will and Grace that people start, you know, were complaining about like, okay, like nobody, there's no gay intimacy on this show. Right. That's another conversation entirely. <laughs> um, you know, uh, depictions of gay intimacy. And that's mm-hmm. a conversation that we continue to have. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've come a long way with that uh, in, in TV. And now it's not really a thing that gets pushed back on. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, and then I was just watching the third season of um, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and Laura Dern is on it. Mm. And she mm-hmm. was the one Ellen came out to on yeah. that episode. At the airport. And God damn it, she doesn't look exactly the same on Kimmy Schmidt. <laughs> she has the same, you know, she has a sit- sitcom hair. And uh, she busted it out again on Kimmy Schmidt and she looked great. But no, I, re- I remember that very vividly. I remember when that episode came out, I had just uh, was going through a breakup with my first girlfriend who mm. I had in high school. And I remember, like, in addition to just, like, being upset at, like, um, having a breakup with your first relationship, the overwhelming feeling I had was that, like, as we were parting and she was going to date some guy, that I was, the phrase, like, I was left holding the gay bag was just, like, in my head. Like, okay, we've done this thing and we've exited and now I'm... Does Ellen say that? No, no, no. This was my personal experience. You thought of that word, that term? Yeah. That's such a good term. Holding this now that I now have to, like, figure out how to live... And mm. everything's going to be terrible. And it's just yeah. like, if we're not going to be together, then I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm never going to find anybody mm. else. And like, what would I even do? Where would I go? Um, and so seeing this on, on television and knowing that there, there were other people in the world that I could possibly find was just really, well, really nice. Yeah, that night I can remember. Um, so that aired when I was in ninth grade. And I remember that that night, um, so I had a, a bad thing I did a couple of years going into like from junior high to senior high where I'd always get crushes on the absolute worst possible straight guys I could get crushes on. <laughs> and then inevitably they would find out because I just didn't have enough creep to me. Really? And uh, and it would ne- never go well. Um, did you like write notes? No, I just acted like a crazy girlfriend. Okay. <laughs> well, that's how it happened in the ninth grade. Eighth grade, it was because I told somebody and they told somebody and then I got mm-hmm. back to the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, ninth grade, it was because I just, it became noticeable um, mm-hmm. that I had these feelings that had developed. And, um, and so, and this guy, he was on the baseball team. And so he wrote a note to me um that he wrote sort of in um he wrote it sort of like in committee with the rest of the baseball team oh my god and gave it to a friend of mine who was on the baseball team and then he came to my house the night the ellen episode aired and like walked into my living room and just started reading this note out loud because he thought it was kind of funny your friend yeah okay um and it was like dear leroy you're a faggot i would never touch you with a 10-foot pole uh, and he started to say this out loud. My mom was in the next room watching TV and I like tackled my friend and I was like, shut the fuck up. What are you doing? 
And um, and so it was because uh, everyone called me Leroy in high school. If you if you were wondering what that was, why the note was called Dear Leroy, but I was. Um, and yeah, and I was just like, oh, fuck, you know, here we go again. And uh, you know, so I was like nursing that sort of heartache from that moment. Um, you know, and then just like sitting down watching Ellen and, you know, probably on some level thinking, well, good for her, um, <laughs> you know, but ultimately it doesn't work out with her and Laura Dern either. It's true. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I think that's why I felt that extra piece of connection with the, uh, with Diane Sawyer special about troubled gay youth mm-hmm. afterward. I'm just like, I am a troubled gay youth. Absolutely. I'm like, make a segment about falling in love with straight people. <laughs> that's really what's going to help gay youth. <laughs> Which I think ends up being, uh, uh, thread in some of the stories that were the movies we're about to watch it that was definitely be. a big part of that that part of um this 90s queer cinema it was all in the dynamic of like falling in love with a straight person mm-hmm. like the only sort of way to do yeah. things like a, a woman in a relationship finds you know has a crush on this lesbian and like things kind of go mm-hmm. sometimes well right not not so often um but most times not so yeah. well which is really yeah, i mean it's honest because it does happen in real life honestly you know mm-hmm. obviously because it happened to me and it sounds like it may have happened to you if you're I mean, it was definitely, I don't know if it was because of cinema or uh, or not, uh, but it was definitely the pattern I took for the next probably mm-hmm. 15 years. Yes. Like, well, I can only, uh, you know, try to convince yeah. straight women uh, to be together. Uh, you know, and it is, it's a thing that, you know, I think that it'd be great to, and I think this is happening now, but for sure coming out of, you know, that era, there was so much internalized homophobia mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. queer people mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, I don't want to date somebody who acts gay. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, yeah. That's a horrifying thing yeah. to say. It was, oh but my God. But it's something God. that we all, and, and, and it's certainly still an issue with a lot of gay men. Yeah, and I mean, that comes up uh, in uh, one of my movies, um, and, and it, that's part of, one of the reasons I chose that movie was because, um, you know, especially in the, the late 90s and early 2000s, there was definitely a very, uh, if it was like a femme couple um it was fine mm-hmm. um but if there was any sort of um you know like the whole like butch gen butch femme dynamic was like not in vogue at the time absolutely um so yeah that was a very uh, interesting way to have to navigate who you are uh in the context mm-hmm. of something that's already marginalized and then figuring out sort of where you fit both within that status mm-hmm. um as as you're trying to figure out how to not be uh, made fun of yeah by people yeah i uh I was definitely finding out about a lot of my things from Entertainment Weekly, uh, mm-hmm. which, which you know, I think I've talked about before, but that was the biggest, like, cultural North Star for me was that magazine. We started getting it every week in January 92 from that time onward, and that just is what taught me almost pretty much everything I, I know hmm. was getting that every week and, you know, and seeing these little write-ups. And, of course, you scan for those words, you know, <laughs> there are certain words you look for that will, like, tip you off. And I there in Pittsburgh there really wasn't Pittsburgh didn't really have like a Cedar Lee like Pittsburgh mm. had some you know some you know theaters that showed indie film, but there wasn't like this like this destination like mm-hmm. Cedar Lee, and um, and so I just had to watch everything on I just had to rent it mm, you know and that yeah. was a thing I did every weekend for years and years and years and years and years was every single weekend it was understood that I would be driven to <laughs> to Movies Plus. Prince uh, Leroy yes. needs to go to the movie. It was, it was just understood. I was driven to <laughs> Movies Plus or a variety of other places because I knew all the places that had the movies I wanted. <laughs> and I would rent like at least three movies every weekend. Wow. And I would just watch them all and I would copy most of them um, because it was VHS and we mm. had two VCRs. So, you know, copy to copy. So I would go and buy, I would rent 
three movies and then I would um, and then I would you know get my like my six hour VHS tape to record the three movies onto. <laughs> I actually was for a period of time I would go into because Movies Plus would rent them inside clamshells of course that had like um, but it was like it was a clamshell where it had the actual um, original VHS slipcover in it, mm-hmm. but the sides were covered up by like a, a, a little piece of you know Movies Plus marketing material, mm-hmm. and so I would take it out and I would cut. <laughs> out the side and I would cut out like the name and then the little like thumbnail picture <laughs> and I would like glue them to the front of my little VHS tapes Wow! to you know for presentation because I didn't want to look ugly of course um, and, where are those uh, VHS tapes now? oh god I mean I feel like they're probably still they're probably at my mom's uh, like storage space or something oh, wow. like that so it's like the Jason Leroy softcore porn rent- <laughs> lending was, library it wasn't softcore porn <laughs> I didn't rent anything that was softcore porn I mean I definitely would like you know find out which movies had dicks in them mm-hmm. um, but these were legitimate French films <laughs> um, you know props to Queen Margot but so uh, but yeah so I would just go and I would watch these movies and like, and that would that would just give me hope. And uh, and there are some movies that I feel like you know I'm not going to name as like the very best, um, you know, in terms of overall queer film. But you know, there were some breakthroughs in terms of like Rupert Everett and My Best Friend's Wedding. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was huge. I mean, he was an out gay actor playing mm-hmm. a gay key supporting role in a massive mainstream blockbuster romantic comedy, mm-hmm. a heterosexual yeah. romantic comedy. And even though it sort of, you know, reinforced like the gay man as, um, you know, straight woman's emotional support animal. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, or really introduced it, uh, basically introduced it to the mainstream <laughs> and before Will and Grace. Uh, you know, that was to see that and to be like, to see like Julia Roberts yeah. and Cameron Diaz, even though that was her like first breakthrough role, uh, to see them around him and like they're affirming him and he's there mm-hmm. and it's not an issue uh, was huge. Mm-hmm. Um, another one I thought of was um, Home for the Holidays, uh, which was, it's directed by Jodie Foster, and it's the best Thanksgiving movie of all time. <laughs> it stars Holly Hunter as this woman who goes back to her neurotic family for Thanksgiving. Her parents are played by Charles Durning and Anne Bancroft. Oh, wow. And this came out in like 95. <laughs> <laughs> Ding. Ding. And um, Robert Downey Jr. plays her brother, and he's gay. And, and they have this great relationship. And he's like out to her, but not really so much to their parents. Um, but he and but the, you know she and him just have this fully like supportive back and forth relationship where she's like fully like non judgmental mm-hmm. and embracing of his lifestyle and just accepts it as part of who he is. And and there are you know his his he his we find out he's gotten married to his partner recently and he like sneaks away to call him and we like see this footage on the other end of like his partner in this like house party with all their like boho mid nineties friends <laughs> and uh, and it was such like an it gets better type moment for me to be able to look at that character mm-hmm. and. And, um, you know, because I certainly recognize a lot of myself and my family in the setting um, of Home for the Holidays in the actual suburb home. Um, so looking at that, I was like, oh, you know, like this is this is great. And even though, of course, Jodie Foster herself, uh, you know, would not come out even <laughs> to, right. to the extent that she has ever actually fully come out, which, of course, she has a very complicated relationship with that term mm-hmm. and with the process. Um, but. You know, I will always be indebted to her for uh, for telling that story, for taking this. It's based on a short story, and she took it and she turned it into a feature film, and it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, but do you have things like that where it's just like supporting characters that like jumped out and you were like, ooh, you know, in things that weren't necessarily queer stories, but... I can't think of any off the top of my head, um, 
But I I do feel like I was always sort of looking for something like that in a movie. Mm. Um, I, that, I feel like they, there weren't that many like sort of supporting lesbian characters and things that I could and, think of. But and I, when there they were there, they always were... turned out to be straight. Oh, yeah. Like Lady Absolutely. Duvall and the faculty. Or like, even trying to think of, um, I'm trying to remember who the actress was. Um, oh, it, this was more of like a, I think maybe in television. Um, but uh, Jill Hennessy in uh, Law and Order, oh. I was always like, "Oh, is she gay," hmm. um, and then got obsessed. And then she ended up being in that Chutney Popcorn lesbian movie, where I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me? This is the movie wasn't that great, but I was like, this is amazing." Um, but I actually wanted to get another movie from this time period. I wanted to see what you think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was The Birdcage. Oh yeah, uh huh, uh huh. Um, as a as a gay man, what are your what are your thoughts then on the birdcage and maybe now or have they changed? Yeah, the birdcage, I think is first and foremost. I think is 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 a beautifully made comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the performances are so good and you know the film is so funny and of course it's it's based on a French film called The Caja Fall mm-hmm. and uh, and it's it's um you know a pretty faithful adaptation of that story. That just takes the humor and just puts it on American steroids. Mm -hmm. It makes it just broader and more obvious. More Robin Williams. More Robin Williams is what I'm saying, yeah. (laughs) And more Nathan Lane, as it turns out. Absolutely. Uh, But, you know, The Birdcage, you know, I remember seeing it, and I I can't say that I necessarily got any sort of hope from it. Mm -hmm. Not because I was, like, judging what was happening in it, just because I'm like, I don't see any of myself in this. Mm -hmm. So as, like, a little, like, teenager boy, because that came out in 96, (laughs) uh, when I was 14. (laughs) And, um, and I remember, I think we may have even seen it in theaters. Um, but you know, I was like, okay, like this is very, very funny, mm-hmm. but I don't like see myself in, uh, in these characters or their lives. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's, it's a farce, you know, it's a full farce mm-hmm. and it certainly has some things that in retrospect are problematic, mm-hmm. like Hank Azaria's, mm-hmm. um, characterization yeah. of, of, of the maid. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to say there's anything problematic about Nathan Lane's queeniness, uh, mm-hmm. because I think that there, that is a person that exists. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like the whole, you know, uh, Sean Hayes on Will and Grace thing where right. there's this internalized gay shame that makes, makes us feel like we have to lash out when someone's queenie, like we're not all queenie. Mm-hmm. And I think. It's a different conversation back then than it was now. (laughs) Because back then we had so few, we had so little representation that what little we did, we were really fighting about. Mm -hmm. Because we were like, this is all we're going to get. And all we're going to get is Queenie. Uh, You know, this is a a stereotype that we need to show. It's everyone's not Queenie. You know, which is where in Will and Grace, we also had Will. Um, Even though people were still very angry about Jack. uh, Which I feel like today wouldn't be as much of an issue. Um, But... So, you know, and even in the birdcage, I mean, you had Robin Williams' character was not, you know, was was more like somewhat masculine presenting, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which almost kind of gets back to your conversation about like, you know, the mask femme thing in, mm-hmm. you know, lesbian culture was so forbidden. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, in the, in the same, I think that, you know, gender representation is, is almost a different conversation entirely from yeah. queer representation. Because everyone has a different thing about it and there's a lot of hangups. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the birdcage, I think that, you know, I do remember the time people being like, okay, this is like regressive. This plays into gay stereotypes. Right. There's like, it's definitely, there's, there's, there are two big arguments for it. It's like there's popularity and the name recognition of Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the ultimate message of it being about acceptance and like, you know, confronting, uh, you know, what. Uh, right. her family who is very conservative yeah. and like you know m- m- teaching lessons there right. um, and like the importance of community but it, but it comes through as these like you know very stereotypical characters so it's like almost it takes back from the, the victories it could have 
Yeah, I mean, I think in retrospect, I don't think of it as being a, a harmful movie. I think now it can exist in a modern plane where it is not harmful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because, and if anything, I mean, the joke is at the expense of the discomfort of right. these conservative Republican, this conservative Republican family. Mm-hmm. And little baby Calista Flockhart is their right. daughter. <laughs> um, and also, take a moment to acknowledge that Diane Weist is an all-time genius <laughs> in all things. And in that film in particular, yeah. it's very, very funny. But, Absolutely. You know, and that's, and there's a timelessness to that story of, like, just it never mm-hmm. goes away of, like, mm-hmm. you know, fucking hypocritical, disgraced Republican politicians um, mm-hmm. having these sex scandals. And the idea of, you know, that family being pulled into this, like, drag club, um, you know, in the, and it's not like a, oh, we learned something from you know they're basically just uh yeah i mean it's it's a farce it's a comedy of manners it came from a story that you know came from a cultural context in france where it didn't have those same sensitivities and and situations you know so from france it was just a farce in general and it turned into like the longest running you know Mm -hmm. uh play in uh in history or something like that uh when it first came out but Anyway, so I think now we can embrace the birdcage for, for for what it is and not worry that it's going to misrepresent us. But that mm-hmm. certainly was at the time when we fought so hard for what little representation we had. That was a valid thing to be concerned about. So uh, let's talk about the first movie. Um, let's go, which also came out in 1996. <laughs> um, and is uh, my, my picks are in no particular order. I don't know about yours. No. Um, and that movie is Bound. Corky, a tough female ex-con and her lover Violet, concoct a scheme to seal millions of stashed mob money and pin the blame on Violet's crooked boyfriend, Caesar. Oh, Caesar. Oh, Caesar. Um, So, Bound. Bound. (laughs) I think you would be hard-pressed to find someone who, or find a lesbian who this wasn't, of my age, who this isn't on the least top ten list. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and we just watched Showgirls the other night. We did. I watched Showgirls for the first time. And uh, and you asked where this came out in relation to Bound. <laughs> uh, Bound was, what, a year after Showgirls? A year after. A big mm-hmm. year for Gina Gershon. Yes, and in particular, Gina Gershon in, uh, in charged lesbian roles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I picked Bound because um, we've sort of mentioned this on the show from time to time, that I maybe am not the most uh, comfortable person when it comes to, like, overt sexuality. Um, when this movie came out, uh, I was unable to be, (laughs) um, was unable to not pay attention to the overt sexuality and find it amazing. And, um, you know, it, it, it was, there's a sex scene Mm. in this movie that is. To beat the band, really. (laughs) That's what, that's what it's called. It is, it is. And did you see the R-rated or unrated version of the sex scene? Uh, R-rated version. Okay. Oh, there's an unrated version? The unrated goes on a few, yeah. Oh, wow. It goes on a few seconds longer. my. The camera swoops down a little lower. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Was, it was just a a way to see uh, lesbian sex that wasn't, you know, you know, sort of like creepy, steamy, cinemaxy type way. Mm -hmm. Um, It felt, uh, it was beautifully shot and it was uh, enjoyable and you didn't feel like you were doing something wrong. Um, and, and their, their chemistry was just really charged and, uh, it really brought you on board to where they were in this like really exciting, yeah. uh, time. And didn't they bring in Susie Bright to consult on the sex scene in that? I remember hearing. Really? Yeah. Susie, they, cause they wanted to get it right. Hmm. Um, and so they didn't want to have it be like, you know, a man's uh, idea of what lesbian sex would look like. And so mm-hmm. that there's a certain authenticity in the lesbian sex and bound 
because they actually brought in like lesbian erotic experts. That's amazing. Um, to consult and to you know to give it that feel of uh, of, of of realness. Mm-hmm. Um, since at the time the Wachowskis were were presenting as male, mm-hmm, right? Um, and so so even then you know they were concerned about that, mm-hmm. and this was their first. Yeah, film. this was their first film. And to date, my favorite of their films. You can definitely find, like, like there's one scene in particular where uh, I think, like, Corky is picking up the phone and you're, you're waiting for this phone call because they're about to do this caper. So uh, they're about to do this caper and it's, like, all very uh, timed to the moment. Like, if anything goes wrong in this caper to steal this, this money, like, they're going to clearly be captured and killed. And there's this phone call that happens that's supposed to sort of, like, trigger the sequence of events. And it's, like, one person picks up the phone and you, like, the camera follows the phone cord like through the walls, down through the the, the apartment it building, so and then cool in the through the, up the phone. <laughs> but you could totally see how later on that like that kind of film uh, mm-hmm. making shows up in like the Matrix. And oh, like totally. That. I mean, Bound I think was so influential with its cinematography mm-hmm. in general, mm-hmm. and I think at the time it was almost thought of as like a post Pulp Fiction kind mm-hmm. of film noir pastiche. But Bound is such a masterpiece, and it's really not. I don't think of it as being connected to Pulp Fiction because it's not like meta. It's not being jokey. It's not too cool. No, it's very, it's very committed Mm -hmm. to telling the story that it tells. Um, In retrospect, Gina Gershon as Corky is, was kind of, was, was in, in, in and of herself was kind of a lesbian cliche in this film. She had the tattoo. Did she not? Yes, she had the tattoo. And I want to say I heard that she, um, she insisted on getting that because she thought that Jennifer Tilly was having too much uh, glam squad attention being given to her. And really? Gina Gershon wanted something too. <laughs> and so she went off and came back and she had this tattoo. Oh my God. Um, she's like, so there. <laughs> uh, but um, but yeah, so, and I remember I, re- I watched, I rewatched Foxfire recently. Oh wow. Which is a film that's very, very queer feeling, even though there's no overt lesbianism in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Angelina Jolie in that film and Gina Gershon and Bound are like twins. Oh, wow. Uh, they, I haven't seen Foxfire in forever. They look remember. like exactly the same. They have the exact same like black leather jacket, jeans, same mouth, <laughs> <laughs> same kind of haircut. Uh, so, but, uh, you know, so when you look back uh, and think about her in that movie, it's kind of like, do you think you could still like watch and be like, yeah, or watch and be like, oh God, this is so like <laughs> mid nineties lesbian fantasy. Um, I, I feel like I would still, still think yeah um you know we we as we mentioned before like this is that sort of uh stereotype of like mm. uh you know a handyman type lesbian who like yes. drives a truck and mm-hmm. you know has which is generally something i don't i'm not a fan of when we just watched that uh canadian movie a couple of weeks ago <laughs> right below her mouth below right? her mouth with the mm-hmm. uh, same same basic same character thing. but yeah. I, I maybe it's the acting maybe it's the overall everyone's kind of a uh a, 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 such a character in this movie mm-hmm. where it's like jennifer tilly's like mulk everyone is so done up and so extra and so obvious so it's like it's not like everyone else is like relatively normal and then gina gershon is like this crazy like sexy butch it's right. everyone seems kind of yeah, ridiculous. everyone's very heightened yeah so in this like cartoonish world it, it makes yeah. sense it seems less goofy and if i recall correctly jennifer tilly set has a line where she kind of almost checks gina gershon for being too overt or being mm, like oh too you obvious like you need to wear it on your arm mm-hmm. yeah um you know like some of us yes uh, yeah you know are more uh, understated mm-hmm. or something like that mm-hmm. which i remember thinking was an interesting perspective although at the same time this is also very much like a falling in love like similar to below her mouth falling in love with a girl who's in a relationship with a guy oh yeah and uh you and know tales all his time uh this one you know it's a it's a particularly um 
It's a particularly interesting one because, you know, uh, Jennifer Tilly's husband, Caesar, is... Uh, Joe Pantoliano. Joe Pantoliano. And, uh, you know, he's terrible. He's a mobster and he's mm-hmm. violent and he's... Uh, it's Yeah, there's some, like, there's some <laughs> grisly violence in this movie. It really is. Yeah. Um, so it's like, it's not just that, um, you know, it's a straight woman cheating. It's almost like, get out of this abusive mm-hmm. relationship and there's, you know, a, clear, a clearer path now. So it's not quite as... It yeah. doesn't feel as, like... Um, I don't know, mischievous or is like, you know, um, I don't know, wrong as just breaking up a marriage. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting thing where we feel like it's almost a survival relationship for Violet, possibly. Oh, absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and this is Jennifer Tilly just at her peak. Oh, yes. Um, in terms of where she was at in her career, in terms of her acting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I've always loved her. And this was just two years after her surprise Oscar nomination for Bullets Over Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is really all eyes on Tilly and, uh, and she just, she, I mean, she looks amazing. She acts amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, this is definitely one of her finest moments. And Gina Gershon too. Um, you know, and she's, you know, worked more consistently since then. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, like it's definitely peak. I mean, she again, looks fantastic and is just so fucking badass. And I think mm-hmm. so many queer women watch this movie and we're like, I want to be her. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is my first pick. Um, Jason, do you want to go ahead and tell me what your first pick of the, uh, of the show is? Sure. Uh, so my first pick, uh, is a film that's actually the, the protagonist isn't necessarily a queer person, but it's a queer, uh, writer director's first film and, uh, and very much a queer setting of the story. Uh, this film is called The Opposite of Sex. A 16 year old girl visits her gay half brother and ends up seducing his boyfriend thus wrecking havoc on all of their lives. Uh, so, uh, so the film was written and directed by Don Ruse, uh, who at the time had been already a working screenwriter. Uh, he, uh, he has screenplay credits on some really great female-driven movies in the 90s, such as Single White Female, mm. um, Boys on the Side. Oh, wow. Yes. Uh, the Pittsburgh set remake <laughs> of Diabolique. Oh, my God. That should have been one of my movies. <laughs> Forgot about the Evelyn. I knew a guy in high school who was an extra in that film, and I was so jealous of him that I could not get him to tell me anything. Um, because I was like, at the time, I was obsessed with Isabella Gianni. Mm. And uh, and so the idea that she was like in my backyard was too much for me to hate. I remember watching that movie where it was uh, a friend of mine were on the phone, talking on the phone the whole time we were watching the movie. And then we were both watching it on TV at the same time. <laughs> anyway, go on. So good. Uh, so the opposite of sex, yeah. So it's Don Ruse. He's a, a queer uh, filmmaker, and this was his first time as a director. He also wrote the story, and um, so Dee Dee Truitt is the protagonist, and she's played by Christina Ricci. In one of the performances that first heralded her as an adult performer, this was like her transition from child star to adult. Mm-hmm. She was such an indie darling there for like in like 1998. Between this, Buffalo '66, she was in the Ice Storm. Mm. Uh, so she was on a roll and, um, and she, unfortunately, you know, people haven't really figured out what to do with her since then. Um, but this was a fine, fine year for her. And Dee Dee Truitt, I think is probably her best non-Wednesday Adams performance. Uh, mm. it is the funniest. She says the worst, most fucked up, most heinous shit in this movie. And it's funny as fuck. <laughs> this movie is so fucking good. Uh, so Martin Donovan plays the role of her gay half brother. And, um, and it's, it, there's an interesting sort of generational thing happening here. Uh, so Martin Donovan's character, his brought, uh, his, he had, he had a partner, a longtime partner who passed away of AIDS. 
and um, and he's sort of living in this kind of like this. He's he's found a new life after that because you know he's finally been able to go out and find a new boyfriend, and he is best friends. He's a teacher, and his um, his best friend is the sister of his partner, who is also a teacher at his school. Her name is Lucia Delory, and she's played by Lisa Kudrow <laughs> in one of the greatest performances of all time. This was the first time Lisa Kudrow played against type since being cast as Phoebe on Friends. Oh, really? And um, in this film, she could not look more different. She's dressed as a sort of a dowdy school teacher. She has like long brown hair and like this like severe French braid. Um, and she's so bitter. I think um, Christina Ricci asked her at one point after watching her say something horrible. She's like, God, how does one become so bitter? And Lucia like exhales from a cigarette and she's like, observation. <laughs> and uh, and so then this sort of like this sex farce kind of you know springs into effect where uh, Christina Ricci starts uh, going after her half brother's hot new lover who's played by Ivan Sergei, who was just like mm. world class '90s piece of ass, mm-hmm. who I believe was also in Dangerous Minds and the original Mother May I Sleep with Danger. <laughs> uh, and um, and then this sort of yeah this like sex farce erupts where she's like stealing her brother's boyfriend away and then like you know pretending that she's knocked up and I mean she's a, she's just trouble she's just mm-hmm. trouble but you can't help but love her because she's just like she's also coming from a place of just survival mm-hmm. and um and uh and the Wakers in Richie plays her you love her but Johnny Galecki is also in the film <laughs> uh he plays wow. he plays a character uh who is um I believe he's like an ex-student of Martin Donovan's and um and he he's sort of a he's sort of like a parody of what was to come for gay men so there's a huge generational divide between gay men who were old enough to really be impacted by AIDS mm-hmm. actively and gay men who aren't old enough to have been and there is this monologue uh that Martin Donovan says to Johnny Glucky at one point, because Johnny Glucky tries to sort of like, uh, he tries to uh, blackmail him. Um, and he is, uh, so Martin Donovan's character is meant to be sort of like, I guess you could think of it as sort of like somebody who's like very early in the Gen X spectrum, mm-hmm. like, to, you know, and then with someone who's very, very late in the Gen X years. And so Martin Donovan uh, is sitting in this car uh, with the Johnny Glucky character. And, uh, and so then he reaches over and he grabs, uh, the, uh, Jason. So Bill is the name of Martin Donovan's character. Mm-hmm. Jason is Johnny Glucky's character. Bill grabs Jason's nipple and J- Jason says, ow, that's pierced. And then Bill twists it. Jason's like, ow. And Bill says, and I'm reading this from, uh, from IMDb's quotes page. And I feel like this is like a Magna Carta, like thesis <laughs> statement from, that generation of gay men speaking to a younger generation. Listen to me, you little grunge faggot. <laughs> I survived my family, my schoolyard, every Republican, every other Democrat, Anita Bryant, the Pope, the fucking Christian coalition, not to mention a real son of a bitch of a virus, in case you haven't noticed. In all that time, since Paul Lynn and Truman Capote were the only fairies in America, I've been busting my ass so that you'd be able to do what you wanted with yours. So I don't just want your obedience right now, which I do want and plenty, fun to, and plenty of it, but I want your fucking gratitude right fucking now. You're going to be looking down a long road at your nipple in the dirt. Do you hear what I'm saying? Uh, and uh, there's so much in <laughs> that that just sort of speaks to the experience that surely that Don Ruse as a filmmaker related to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what he kind of wanted to say through this character. 
giving a voice to the generation mm-hmm. of gay men that hadn't really been given so much of a voice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and certainly Johnny Galecki's ridiculous, um, sort of shallow, vapid, self-obsessed, you know, nipple-pierced character <laughs> really foreshadowed a lot of the awfulness of today's gay men. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, and this is a film where, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, of gay intimacy uh, but, you know, but just the resilience uh, of these characters mm-hmm. and the sort of like generational clash between them and this, this friendship between, um, between Bill and Lucia, uh, these were the things that really, uh, just grabbed me. I mean, if I'm being honest, this is a film that I love from, you know, beginning to end for Christina Ricci and for the fucked up shit she says in this movie. Uh, because you know this movie gives us things that gay men love <laughs> you know <laughs> we love we love a, a sass mouth femme fatale and that is what uh, Christina Ricci plays in this as well as Lisa Kudrow uh, but this is a film that uh, that I have come back to again and again through the years it's one of the wittiest funniest movies um, and in uh, just career best work from uh, Christina Ricci and Lisa Kudrow and that one came out in 98, um, which is the same year as the next movie we're going to choose, <laughs> uh, which is my second movie, uh, which is High Art. A young female intern at a small magazine company becomes involved with a drug-addicted lesbian photographer, both of whom seek to exploit each other for their respective careers while slowly falling in love with each other. Um, so one thing I wanted to note, uh, the first movie, Bound, the second movie, The Opposite of Sex, and this one, High Art, they're all available right now to rent on streaming services. Um, so you can find them on on the internet. Uh, so High Art, this movie is on my list because this movie came out, as we mentioned, five or six times already in 1998. <laughs> and um, at that point, I was graduating high school. And in this movie, we have Rada Mitchell, who is, uh, you know, as we said, a young intern uh, in New York working for this photography magazine. Uh, just starting out, and she stumbles into the life of a famous photographer who lives above her uh, named Lucy Berliner, played by Ali Sheedy. And they live this life of, like, what you assume New York art life is like. (laughs) It's this, you know, beautiful, open, like, penthouse apartment Mm -hmm. with brick walls. She's, uh, Ali Sheedy's character is uh, dating... Um. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> really, one of the most amazing characters of of all movies, mm-hmm. um, uh, an actress named Greta, who is played by Patricia Clarkson in her breakout performance. It's so good. Um, they're all addicted to drugs. They are all high Her- heroin, specifically high yeah. on heroin most of the time. Mm-hmm. But they're also glamorous. they have a lot of fun. Yeah, they're glamorous. You know, they're in the art world. Um, they look fabulous. They have a you know rotating group of friends that come over. They have interesting conversations. It's like what you dream you know as a as a teenager. What coolness mm. is? It's mm-hmm. like just the epitome of this like New York art cool. Yeah. And um and I and um Rada Mitchell's character are enamored with it. <laughs> you know. And I think that when you watch the movie later, you can look back and say, you know, yes, that looks very cool. But you're also like, what a train wreck. I mean, it definitely things don't end up well for these circumstances. Mm-hmm. And it's just clearly a very sad train wreck of a situation that's happening upstairs. But you see it through Rodda Mitchell's eyes. You see like how cool and mysterious and exciting and mm-hmm. sexy it is. 
Um, and what it really is is a you know kind of a washed up artist trying to get a, sh- a shot, a second shot at um, you know being famous and and having her work taken seriously. Um, but you know her life is a mess. She she's in this terrible relationship. Um, you know they have to deal with uh, overdoses and all sorts of things. Um, but they manage to find um, this this bit of life in, in this relationship that they build and you know this is another case where Arada Mitchell's character you know has moved to New York this like small broken barely afforded apartment mm-hmm. um, and she's she's there with her boyfriend um, who loves her very much and they have they have a, a great relationship except as soon as she starts to see like the cool life upstairs she is like not at all interested in him anymore she has like <laughs> He's just kind of like left questioning what has happened and what is going on and why he wants, why she wants to hang out with him and what she sees up there Uh, and doubting uh, what ends up being, you know, the inevitable um, that uh, she's cheating on him. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing is just really dreamy. Uh, It's beautiful performances. This is Ali Sheedy had like her comeback. Yeah. Comeback was also very interesting. First time since Brat Pack. The comeback of the character and the comeback of the actress. Mm. Um, And this was the breakout film by Lisa Cholodenko. Right. As well, who went on to do The Kids Are All Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly a, another sort of uh, mm-hmm. not necessarily embraced by the gay community gay film. Exactly, <laughs> with Annette Benning and Julianne Moore. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it introduced Patricia Clarkson into the world, introduced mm-hmm. Lisa Chotladenko to the world. It gave us Ali Shee again for a brief moment before we were like, nope, still don't know what to do with her. <laughs> then she vanished away. Had Rada Mitchell been in things before this? Um, I don't know that she had been in much. I know she went on to do a Woody Allen movie, um, mm. and she, I believe, was in the Pitch Black films. She was. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know what's ever happened to her since then. Mm. Um, but, uh, but High Art was certainly... Uh, this was a movie that sort of... Um, transcended its queerness and was just mm-hmm. an art house must watch. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't thought classified as like LGBT cinema, no. even though it was made by a queer woman and is about queer characters, you know, it was just an art house must see. It was like a tr- the trendy film du jour um, when it came out. Mm-hmm. And that as a form of, you know, kind of progress because it's like, it's not being gay ghettoized. It's being, you know, something like, Oh, like everyone's got to see high art. You know, it was like, you know, a Lost in Translation type film where it's like, oh, it's just like, gotta right. see it. Yeah. Gotta see it. And Ellie Sheedy won, an, uh, I think, an American Spirit, an Independent Spirit Award mm-hmm. uh, for a performance here. Um, I think this was, uh, yeah, this is uh, Rada Mitchell's like first um, sort of breakout performance as well. She uh, was just in a couple of Australian things before that. Oh, she's Australian? Uh-huh. She is Australian. Like all uh, she was in Phone Booth. She was in Man on Fire. She mm. was in Finding Neverland. Uh, uh, Silent Hill. Yeah, she's become more of a genre actress, yeah. kind mm-hmm. of. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, it's just it's, it's funny. This like there's you know there should be like a supercut of like of like the men who are like cucked in all these lesbian movies, <laughs> you know, and include like Eric Mabius from the L Word. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> it's the same thing every time. Every time. Uh, you know, except for in Kids Are All Right, where Annette Benning's the one getting cucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> Poor thing. Keeps losing Oscars. Also, and now this. can we not in- make that word part of our vocabulary? I'm trying to reclaim it. I'm <laughs> um, cuckolded. Well, it's short for cuckolded. So I could I could say the whole word. I mean, you could. <laughs> you could. Like, and you would, wouldn't you? Uh, this is one I definitely feel like um, if we watched it again today, I'm pretty confident we'd still. I think we still love. Yeah, I have it on DVD in the next room. Oh, perfect. Let's stop recording and watch it. <laughs> we'll be right back. Um, Jason. Oh. What's your next movie? Well, my next film is actually a tie. 
Uh, so I feel like it's it's come to be very uh, the idea of like the LGBT coming of age romance um, has been sort of cliched into the ground, um, and uh, and as a result, we have a hard time kind of as as queer audiences have a hard time taking them seriously mm-hmm. um, because every gay film festival is just littered with like poorly mm-hmm. made um, gay coming of age love stories. Even though there's still always a resonance to them, it's sort of like, okay, if you're not going to do something fresh with it, then don't bother me with this. Then you have a breakout like Moonlight. Exactly. You have a breakout like Moonlight or, you know, uh, point to uh, GBF, mm-hmm. uh, GBF as, as, a, as, a, as a great coming of age uh, queer story that did not fall into any of the usual boring tropes mm-hmm. and was just very uh, sharp and snappy and biting and clever. Uh, but in this case, in the 90s, it was still a new enough thing that I think you know the the, fir- the first few films to emerge from this sort of subgenre um, had a lot of life and significance and vitality to them, and these are two of them. One is uh, is a British um, gay male uh, coming of age love story called Beautiful Thing, and the other is an American lesbian coming of age uh, love story called All Over Me. And keeping in uh, keeping in theme, they were both released in 1997. <laughs> <laughs> in a suburb of London, young Jamie is escaping sport hours to avoid being the victim of his comrades. Young Stay, his neighbor, is beaten by his father and comes to sleep overnight. They discover new feelings, sleeping in the same bed. And then All Over Me is about how Claude and Ellen are best friends who live in a not-so-nice area of New York. They're involved in the subculture of 90s youth, complete with drugs, Live music and homophobia. These summaries, <laughs> Just are, not, those these summaries are not great. These summaries are not the best. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay, so I'll start with Beautiful Thing. Uh, this is a story that plays out. So if, if the lesbian trope in every film involves like a woman who is married to a guy or in mm-hmm. a relationship with a guy who falls and then she falls in love with a woman, in gay male stories, it frequently <laughs> involves... Um, our protagonist is a gay boy who is sensitive and quiet and non-athletic and mm-hmm. maybe closeted because you know, these stories have writers and those writers are those people. <laughs> and, um, and they fall in love with a guy who seems straight um, and who is maybe frequently an athlete and somebody who uh, is the, the type who would normally victimize or bully them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, in this, uh, this can be fetishized as it is by our friend Dave. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Or, I mean, I feel like it's very, uh, interesting considering your story about, um, the night of Ellen's show. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. No, I mean, that, that was, that was a thing. I mean, I think that especially when you're, um, the way that your sexual tastes are shaped by what culture says is attractive is, is certainly a very real thing. And so, you know, in culture it's like, oh, okay, it's guys who are like jocks or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. So um, so even though, but you know, these stories are me made by adult males. <laughs> They're still doing these <laughs> stories, but it's fine. Um, this in particular was based on a play, and um, the playwright adapted. His name is Andrew Harvey, I believe, and he adapted the play into this film, directed by a woman named Hetty McDonald. So, uh, so in this, in this, this is one of many stories like that. But, um, but you know, it's a it's a British film, and uh, and it sort of has um, it's very much of a piece with sort of British social realism mm. um, in the ways that it play it lays out these characters' lives. These are people who live in council estates in southeast London, mm-hmm. and um, and there's there's a lot of sort of class based struggle and strife in each of their lives and the lives of their parents. And uh, so those pieces of the characterizations and of the story. Um, give an extra gravity to it, so that it all feels earned. It doesn't feel like this sort of like just like do, you know doofy dippy mm-hmm. you know gay love story. Um, you know these are two 
you know, human beings who are who are just trying to survive in their surroundings. And they're able to make this connection. And certainly at the time when I saw it, I was for sure blown away by this idea that this like very rough around the edges, aggressive jock guy could underneath that defense, you know, actually also be, you know, sort of trying to cope with this feeling he has the same way that I'm coping with it. Did you feel inspired by movies like this too? Because when you told me the story, you mentioned the story earlier about mm-hmm. um, the the boy and the baseball team. Yeah, I was uh, I was shocked that you actually like had done like you had told people and that you mm-hmm. had like been bold. Yeah, because um, I feel like that's something that I wouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like these movies embolden you to to try try to mm. try to woo the guy? I mean, I didn't really necessarily try to. I mean, I was definitely super passive aggressive in my courtship, quote unquote, okay. of this particular guy. And I had no choice about being out because I was outhid um, mm. several times over the course from eighth grade on through the end, basically. So it was not something where I had like agency per se. Mm-hmm. So I think it was sort of like since it had already happened and I couldn't undo it, um, you know, I, it was something that was just known about me. And um, and so with this, but with that guy, I was just trying to like hang out with him too much. Like I was like, we were we were friends, and I was trying to like initiate a lot of hangouts, and then I started to get kind of jealous girlfriendy because mm-hmm. he was like not hanging out with me as much. And, um, you know, it's just like that Mindy Keeling book says, is everyone hanging out without me? <laughs> um, just that fear, basically. But but I think stories like this certainly were comfort. Um, mm-hmm. You know, seeing it actually happen and work out for somebody mm-hmm. um, was comforting. Uh, another terrific thing about this film is its soundtrack. That's actually true of both of these films. So the Beautiful Thing soundtrack is what introduced me to the music of Mama Cast as oh, wow. a solo artist. Because I knew Mamas and the Papas. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did not know that she had gone solo. And if you guys haven't listened to Mama Cass Elliott's solo material, do so. Because she was one of the greats. Um, and uh, so there's a character in this film who's like a neighbor. Um, and uh, she's like this sort of like very defiant, be who you are, live your own life mm-hmm. uh, type character. And she is an inspiration to the boys um, because she's just so exuberant and flamboyant. And she loves, lives for Mama Cass, plays her albums all the time. And, um, and, uh, and there are some very gorgeous, gorgeous uses <clears throat> of Mama Cass's songs during like tender romantic scenes in this mm. film. Uh, so, uh, this, this is just uh, a real gem, uh, from the canon of, uh, gay LGBT coming of age love stories. And, and I believe it's one of the first and one of the best. Uh, so that is... Actually, I have seen this movie. I just oh, remember now when you said that they live in like a brutalist apartment complex, right? Well, yeah, well, it's like a council estate. Yeah, yeah. And the, yes, I remember this. Yeah. yeah, that was very delightful. Yeah, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Yeah, it was the Mama Cass started to trigger mm-hmm. you. Yep, that was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, there's like a gorgeous, you know, they're playing, I mean, the song Make Your Own Music mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. is, you know, uh, is is has such a profound meaning yeah. In the context of this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think that that song, just hearing, you know, make your own kind of music, sing your own special song, even if nobody else sings along, uh, you know, it was a very much sort of like a of its moment kind of, you know, hippie sentiment when she sure. sang it. But applying it in a gay context and being like, you know, with this, this message of, of individualism, mm-hmm. um, in regardless of, of affirmation from those around you, was very powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... That is a part of why I loved Beautiful Thing. And I suspect, hopefully, if I watched it again, I would still love it. I have it on DVD, have not touched it in years. Um, But it meant very much to me at the time. Uh, The second film Mm -hmm. is All Over Me. 
And, uh, and this is a film that, um, as well, uh, w- with my final film I'll talk about later, it won. Um, so the Berlin Film Festival has a subset of awards called the Teddy Awards. That's specifically for LGBT films. Uh, because the Berlin Film Festival is awesome like that. <laughs> and, uh, and All Over Me won the Teddy Award for Best First Feature. Um, it was directed by a woman named Alex Sitchell. And, uh, and Allison Foland, uh, who plays the role of Claude, was nominated for a Spirit Award for Best Female Lead for this. Allison Foland is such uh, an of-a-time-and-place actress because mm. she was also in To Die For. Oh, wow. She played, um, in that film, she played the teenage girl that Nicole Kidman seduces. Uh, mm-hmm. and, um, oh, and, that is a time and place. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then she was also in Good Will Hunting. Oh, wow. Yes. Uh, so, uh, she was, she was sort of, uh, you know, I don't know, sort of before like Sarah Rue and people like that, mm-hmm. Alison Fullen was kind of, uh, ahead of that curb. Uh, so this is a story that I think is also, it's relatable in a similar way to Beautiful Thing, but also its own thing where, so we have this character named Claude, uh, who is, um, you know, she's, she's somewhat, you know, she's, she's larger, she's kind of heavy set, she's plain. And she has this, that her best friend is Ellen, who is like this completely just like pint-sized, super cute, super femme, blonde girl. Cool as can be. Um, And there is a strong kind of, there's a very intense emotional codependency between the two of them Mm -hmm. that can border on romantic. Claude is very much in love with Ellen. And Ellen kind of humors that and maybe indulges it sometimes. Um, but then Ellen starts dating this guy named Mark, who's played by Cole Hauser, who is also an actor of a certain time and place, who played one of the neo-Nazis in Higher Learning. Oh, yeah. Uh, he always oh, played, yeah. he played, um, in, uh, in White Oleander, uh, he played, <laughs> uh, I believe he would play Robin Wright's, uh, uh, husband, who kind of makes sexual interludes to Allison, um, the young actress who plays the, the adoptive daughter. Of the foster daughter, and then anyway, so he when you see him playing a role, you know it's a, it's a bad sign. Um, so <laughs> Do you remember uh, him in higher, higher Learning? Yes, oh god, he has a very distinct voice. I mean, Higher Learning could have also made the list. It could have the made thing, the, the list. whole Tori Amos thing I with Jennifer, uh, with Jennifer Connelly, with Jennifer Connelly, and I know. Uh, although in that movie, it's kind of I mean, like the fact that it's like oh, she gets raped yeah. and she becomes a lesbian. That was a little much, but yeah. it was also you know you, when. When you you only have these nuggets, you mm-hmm. kind of like yeah, pick you apart. You put these blinders on. Mm-hmm. You're like, let's you're not like, talk about how terrible the rest of it exactly. is. Because it's just like really. You're like, thank you scene. for this. I think we were talking about higher learning when we had Defitz's the craft viewing, and we and maybe oh. maybe he hadn't seen it. So we need to have a higher learning viewing. Because do we, a higher learning we episode. Were, we were talking about it, and he was like, "How have I not seen this film?" It is important. Um, yes, it is very important. Um, and so sadly, still relevant. And sadly, still relevant. So. Uh, so there's a turning point that starts to happen uh, in All Over Me where there's this gay male artist who lives, it's a, it's a set in Hell's Kitchen in New York and in the 90s. And so, you know, it's not like a gentrified Hell's Kitchen. It's, mm-hmm. it's very messy. And, um, and like Beautiful Thing, you know, the sort of the cultural class setting of these people living in kind of squalor um, is very much, um, you know, sort of plays into this gravity that the story has. Um, people lazily kind of compared all over me to kids um, when it first oh. came out, just because it's set in a sort of a similar milieu. Um, but uh, this is this is a far more sort of um, it has a lot more emotional integrity and it's much more sort of like um, refined than uh, than kids is. And it's also not as kids I think could accurately be described as an exploitative film. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And this is not that. 
So there's a there's a a queer uh, or a male artist who lives in uh, Claude's apartment building. She kind of starts to talk to and is like, oh, he's like a cool gay dude. Um, and then he is killed in what appears to be a hate crime attack. And um, and then uh, Claude starts to pick up a weird vibe that possibly Ellen's boyfriend was involved in this. And so she starts to feel very, very torn, naturally, and very uh, tormented by this. And around this time, she makes the acquaintance. Uh, she goes to uh, she goes to a club and sees a band. This band happens to basically be Helium, um, <laughs> except for, uh, in addition to Mary Timoney, Leisha Haley is also oh, in the right. band. And, um, and so she plays this, like, super cute, like, pink-haired... Um, you know, guitars and Leisha Haley at the time before she was in uh, the L Word and Yo Play commercials, <laughs> she had her own band called the Murmurs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this was in her musician period uh, of her life. And she is still, I mean, she has a band called Aha uh-huh Her now that she occasionally does stuff with. Mm-hmm. But um, and so, you know, so for me, like this, this experience. So Claude, you know, she goes to this, this like cool, like rock club, sees this cool band. They play Helium plays my favorite song of theirs which is called hole in the ground and uh and then uh she meets uh leisha haley's character and they kind of hit it off and it's sort of like uh you know and they start to kind of become romantically interested in each other but claude cannot disentangle herself from this intense bond that she has with ellen even though it's toxic mm-hmm. and um and so the film is is great in the sense that it kind of it actually is like a tonic to this trope we're talking about where rather than reinforce, um, like, yes, like, you know, like sometimes a straight girl will come around and she'll love you forever. Mm-hmm. Like, just stick with it. Um, you know, it introduces Claude to this very queer, very out, very radical woman. And that's who Claude, like, ends up with. Oh, wow. And is able to sort of, like, cut loose from this toxic, like, straight girl, um, semi-homoerotic relationship that she has. Um it's really a shame I didn't see this one. At the time. <laughs> so many life choices could have been different. There's this scene that is um, endlessly priceless. Um, where um, so when Allison Fullen goes back to Leisha Haley's apartment, um, Leisha Haley puts on Patty Smith groups uh, pissing in a river, and um, and so Claude does this like drunk emotional sing along to it, and then like just like freaks out and runs out of the apartment. This and I'm is, like. You're like that's me. It's your root. I'm like, it, 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 it me. <laughs> it uh, so, and with that said, here's where I need to talk about the soundtrack. The soundtrack to All Over Me just changed my fucking life. Um, I got it uh, when I was like, I think I got it in 1997. I think it was the same night that I went to go see Boogie Nights uh, <laughs> in Oakland and Pittsburgh. I went to Dave's Music Mine across the street and got the soundtrack to All Over Me. This soundtrack is the fucking best. So it has Babes in Toyland. It has Helium. It has the Geraldine Fibbers. It has Sleater Kinney. It has Anita wow. Franco. Uh, it has uh, the Amps, uh, Patty Smith Group, Corner Shop. Uh, Corner Shop. It is Michelle Malone, um, a drugstore. Uh, it is the best soundtrack of all time. It introduced me to almost all of those bands, uh, many of which I listen to to this day oh, actively. Absolutely. And, um, and it's just, it is, it is, it is the best soundtrack, uh, you know, so, uh, formative for you in all sorts of ways. It really, really was. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it's a really, it's a great film and, uh, and, and it really, you know, I think it was sort of, uh, 
Yeah, just it was it's, it has a certain empowerment to it in terms of being able to illustrate these you know these two different options mm-hmm. really, and to show like that you know make the healthy choice. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! I know. Um, so both of these um, are only available to purchase on DVD, or exactly. if you can get down to uh, your local blockbuster video store. Uh, just kidding, those are gone. <laughs> Um, so my last movie is also the most recent movie on this list because it was made in 2000. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and it is a, an HBO TV movie. Um, and it is If These Walls Could Talk 2. 2. Not the first one. Not the abortion one. The lesbian one. Semi-follow-up to the first If These Walls Could Talk, with three segments set in the same house, but with different occupants, which spans nearly 40 years. While the first film dealt with women and the topic of abortion, this deals with women and the topic of lesbianism. That was a great summary. <laughs> That's <laughs> my favorite topic. Favorite summaries mm-hmm. of all movies. Um, okay, it's 2000. Yeah. I hear this movie's coming out. It has Ellen DeGeneres, Anne Hayes, Sharon Stone, Vanessa Redgrave, um, Nia Chloe Long, Sevigny. Chloe Sevigny, Michelle Williams, mm-hmm. and my friend, my best friend, Dave and I, say we don't have hbo we need to figure this out so we go and we rent a hotel room so that we can oh. go watch this movie um, oh as it's God, released that's the cutest we sit down we're so excited the first movie the first part of the movie pops up the first segment in it which takes place in 1961 and uh it opens with uh a showing of the movie the children's hour mm. in a theater which is a movie I had seen um, because my mom really loved it. My mom was a really, really? big Audrey Hepburn fan. Oh, and, wow. Um, I think at one point she was like, I think you would like this. And I'm like... Oh, fuck. What'd that mean? Okay. Well, I think we now know what that <laughs> oh, means. Oh, shit. Um, and it's the, like the most pivotal emotional scene where Shirley MacLaine is... You know, mm. the whole movie is about how these two teachers were um, sort of outed by some mysteri- like a mischievous little girl um, for being lovers as they run this all-girls school, um, which it's a, it's a lie. And um, sort of accidentally out someone who was who actually was out, right. Yeah. Shirley MacLaine character. Uh, Shirley MacLaine, they're trying to figure out how they're going to keep the school open. They, you know, everyone's pulling their their students out. Mm-hmm. And Audrey Hepburn's like, "We'll we'll take care of this. We'll figure it out." Um, and Shirley MacLaine has this breakdown and just says, "Like, Oof. no, this what they're saying is true. Like, I love you. I've always loved you." And Audrey mm-hmm. Hepburn's just like confused. And she was like, "No." And she's like, "No, yeah, I do. They were right." Um, it ends up going tragically, and um, so it starts with that. And um, the, <sighs> as you pan to the theater, we see um, this older lesbian couple watching this movie. So you're like watching a movie. You're watching a movie that really affects you emotionally. And the first part of that movie is a movie being <laughs> is the characters watching a movie that affects them. So it's like it's so meta of sadness right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the first part of this movie is this couple goes home and and uh, Vanessa Redgrave's partner dies. They're like you know like lesbians in their seventies, um, and it's just you know what happens when someone dies and you're not uh, legally recognized as a couple, um, or emotionally rec- recognized as a couple in society. And you know they've built this life together. They were also school teachers together, and um, she's dealing with this loss completely on her own. Um, her partner's family comes because they're you know, they're kind of estranged that she was their estranged aunt. It's Paul Giamatti, um, mm. and he you know is kind. He comes with his wife and daughter, and they're trying to figure out he's he's going to get an estate tax. He needs to sell the house. Vanessa Redgrave is not at all prepared to deal with now having to move and leave her house, mm. um, and it's just it's just such a painful and yeah. and sad way to know 
how uh, how invalid your life is and how invalid your yeah. love and your experience is. It's like a horror movie in a way. It is a uh, horror movie. Where you go through the greatest loss you could go through and cannot in any way acknowledge that you're going through it. Mm-hmm. And things, everything's being taken away from you. Right. And you lose everything and you can't say, but wait, you right. know, you can't say anything. Um, and when this came out in 2000, it was also a very real possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we weren't able to be married and if you were in a position, uh, you could lose everything to someone else's next of kin as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the movie starts out with a huge gut punch. It mm-hmm. is, I watched it again last night. I cried. It's so, there's, it's so sad. Vanessa Redgrave just has this complete breakdown eventually about, you know, the loss of her partner and it's so sad um it's she won uh an emmy and a golden globe for her performance in this um i believe the first film also started with the most gut punch one because i believe the first mm. film started with uh demi moore mm-hmm. uh, playing like a 50s 60s housewife who mm-hmm. has a back alley abortion and perishes in the, in the yeah. final moments of, the, of that segment the last part yeah the second part of this movie takes place in, I believe, it's 1972. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit more, uh, a little bit more <laughs> lightweight than that, but still complicated. Um, you have Michelle Williams in this house of like, I assume this house is like in Berkeley. It's probably in LA, but if to me, if, to me, it feels like Berkeley. It's like mm. a craftsman. Um, they're university students, and they're all part of. They're lesbians that are part of the, like the feminist group. They get kicked out of the feminist group, and uh, Natasha Leone, Neil oh, Long. Natasha yeah. um, and Michelle Williams are you know all upset that they've done so much work for this right. feminist group but that they aren't and, being accepted and this speaks to you know a, a real issue at the time mm-hmm. with feminists, oh, feminists wanting to distance themselves from lesbians because culturally they're being told oh well all feminists are lesbians mm-hmm. and straight women are awful and so they're like nah and they just like we're like get out lesbians right and then there's <laughs> you're ruining feminism for us where Nia Long is like yelling back and she says something like well we're we're like, how was I being a lesbian when I was fighting for your right to for birth control so you could fuck frat boys? <laughs> that should be on a t-shirt. It should be. You should make it a t-shirt. Ooh. You would wear it. Um, so they go out to this bar, like, in the sticks to, like, have a drink. They find out that it's this gay bar. And then they go in. But it's like... So this is, like, the gay culture from the 50s and 60s that, that hasn't changed by this time in the 70s. You know, mm-hmm. these college students are, like, so free and, like... Um, progressive and modern right and here you have very you know gender stereotypes like you know masculine women in suits and, and feminine women in dresses and it's like very uh stern uh, serious environment and um and they are just not having it this they think everyone's a bunch of squares i can't believe these women are wearing ties they're being like, regressive um you're they're they're setting the movement back exactly and in spite of that uh, michelle williams uh is introduced to Chloe Sevigny's character who is so sexy <laughs> she looks like like the hottest Jay Moore could ever look is how Chloe Sevigny <laughs> looks in this movie Jay Moore <laughs> yes if Jay Moore was like a sex god he would look like Chloe Sevigny does in this movie their hair slicked back uh who's total butch um you know tie rides a motorcycle and um they they hit it off so, you know, he kind of goes down this road of um, her being alienated from her friends and made fun of for, for dating this person. Um, and then you have a story about like this, yeah. this really o- actually awkwardly handled sex scene situation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This was uh, so I did a phone interview with Michelle Williams many years ago for the movie The Station Agent. And I brought up this movie and I brought up that she had done by a cheerleader because she was also in that. And we're not mm. talking about that movie, but that was, of no, course, a haven't. big one. I did um, argue with my wife because she insisted that I pick that one. And I know uh, most a lot of people, you know, really mm-hmm. value that one. That one, I don't know. Something that just didn't didn't hit me as hard as these three did. Totally fair. 
Um, and so, and I mentioned, and at the time she broke back, had just been announced. And so I was like, oh, you know, you're doing these different queer movies. Is there any sort of like conscious thread in that for you? And she just went to the story about how this, so she and Chloe Seveny have a very kind of graphic lesbian sex scene mm-hmm. in If These Walls Could Talk too. And um, it was the first time Michelle Williams had done this sort of adult role post Dawson's Creek. And, um, and then it turns out that they had changed directors at the last minute just before they shot that scene. Mm. And they, there was, they just didn't, it was not planned. And so her and Chloe were just asked to basically disrobe and to kind of like move, you know, simulate the sex scene without any blocking having been uh, worked out, without any choreography having been worked out. And that it was just like a very traumatic, harrowing experience uh, for them to go through. Uh, so, uh, that is a bit of a, a downer on, mm-hmm. uh, on, on that scene in terms of, especially since we're talking about the importance of showing queer intimacy as well. Right. Um, my own story about watching this is that my good high school friend Meredith and I watched this together in the AV booth at our high school, uh, because one of us had <laughs> taped it off of HBO. And so we sat there watching it and then it got to that scene and we were like, we would both get in a lot of trouble <laughs> if anyone knew we were watching this like graphic lesbian sex scene in school grounds and it's not doing anything for either of us. So it'd really be in vain, mm-hmm. um, the possible suspension that we would uh, <laughs> suffer for having this play out in front of us. But Chloe and Michelle went through worse. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so the movie just kind of continues with their, um, you see uh, Michelle Williams' character and as she invites uh, Chloe Seven over uh, for dinner and they, they go through this awkward thing where she's rejected she's by she's shamed yeah, yeah and, and for being so masculine and like they you know like why don't we dress you up you would be so pretty and it's you know it's incredibly uncomfortable in, in ways that you know are still um, mm-hmm. applicable to a lot of people um, but they end up reconciling and that leads to the last story <laughs> which is a tough one <laughs> which is Ellen from her two gay period. <laughs> yeah. And this one was directed by Anne, Anne Heche. Heche. Yeah. And it's, uh, she is in a relationship with Sharon Stone. <laughs> God. Ugh. Um, and, and they know, also have a sex scene. They, they do also have a, I forgot about that. I, I forgot about that part. Um, but they're trying to conceive a baby, um, and they kind of go through sperm banks and, you know, it, it's a uh, roller coaster of trying and failing and trying and failing. And, and it's definitely the, the least impactful part. It's the most <laughs> yes. silly. It's very goofy. It's a time capsule. It really, it really is. Yeah. You should Oof. open that one up and it's, oh it'll smell God. a little musty, but it's uh, definitely <laughs> 2000. Oh, fuck. Um, but yeah, I, this, it. It really very accurately portrays a lot of the hardship of gay life um, in ways that you would be a monster not to be able to be sympathetic to. Mm -hmm. And I think for that, this movie is um, incredibly important. Yeah. Uh, My final film and the last one we'll talk about today is also sort of a retrospective of the queer experience and also ties directly into a personal story you just told. It's called The Celluloid Closet, and it is a documentary about the history of queer representation in cinema. Uh, It came out in 1996, and so it's interesting that it came out when it did because it was just the the last chapter in the film is about the rise of new queer cinema with filmmakers like Greg Araki, who I could have talked about endlessly, Mm -hmm. but who I haven't touched on at all, uh, Rose Troche, uh, you know, people who were making queer films, like super still low-budge indie queer films in the early 90s. And uh, so... Uh, so it's 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 directed by um, these documentarians, um, Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman, who are uh, are very pivotal pivotal figures mm. who made the Times of Harvey Milk, mm-hmm. uh, Paragraph One Seventy Five. Oh, wow! Uh, yeah. That made just 
you know, countless essential uh, queer documentaries. And, um, and it was based on a book by Vito Russo, uh, who made this book initially in like 1980, 81. And he actually passed away in 1990. And so he passed away before this film was made. Um, but he, it had his, his blessing and it wasn't until after his death that they could get any traction with it. Um, they had a lot of struggle, a lot of struggle trying to get this one made because there's so much of it that has to do with licensing film oh, clips right. mm-hmm. and getting people to participate and talk openly about these different, uh, these different things. Um, they had some that they were um, abjectly uh, turned down by. Uh, so the filmmakers originally planned a sequence discussing how gay historical figures were portrayed as heterosexual in films. They aborted the sequence when Richard Burton's estate denied <laughs> the rights to Alexander the Great. Mm-hmm. MGM denied use of Hans Christian Andersen from 1952, fearing the filmmakers were trying to out Danny Kaye. And huh. Charlton Heston declined use of the agony and the ecstasy, claiming that Michelangelo was heterosexual. Oh, my God. Um, and then even more recent actors, um, including... Um, so, Michael Aunt Kean, who is uh, a missing face from the Twin Peaks reboot, not only declined to be interviewed for the documentary, but also attempted to prevent clips from his film Making Love from being shown in it. Interesting. Um, from 1982 uh, with Harry Hamlin. Mm. Uh, so... This movie was so eye-opening for me um, because it goes back to the very beginning of the moving picture and just shows you all the different forms that queer characters have taken from being these sort of more overt, flamboyant femme fops Mm -hmm. in these pre-code films to being shoved so far out of sight uh, once the Hayes Code kicked Mm in. Um, And then, um, you know, the sissy... Uh, gave way to just, you know, the villain and all the different kinds of queer villains. Uh, Yeah, Rope. Um, And then, you know, these like, and then stories like The Children's Hour, Mm -hmm. where there's such shame Mm -hmm. in these characters. Like Shirley MacLaine, that scene is so wrenching to watch. And and then kind of coming through into films like The Boys in the Band, Mm -hmm. which we didn't talk about either, Um, you know, which was historic, but still, Mm -hmm. you know, problematic in the sense that it reflects kind of the era in which it was made. And these characters, even though they're now out, still have such Mm self-loathing. And then moving on through movies like Cruising, Mm -hmm. um, and then up through like Basic Instinct, um, you know, like the the Silence of the Lambs, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, these different like LGBT killer characters that we just couldn't quite shake uh, loose from movies. But this film has interviews with so many luminaries like Tom Hanks talks about Philadelphia. Mm. Uh, Lily Tomlin was the narrator of this film and it turns out. So not only was she the narrator, she was a driving force in getting it made, getting it funded. She hosted a fundraiser at the Castro theater here in San Francisco for in 1994 with Robin Williams performing with Harvey Firestein performing, um, you know, just getting everybody on board. She ended up going to HBO personally and, 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 and treating them to help get this funded. It wound up winning um, a Peabody Award. It also won. It won an Emmy. It won the also it won the Teddy Award from the Berlin Film mm-hmm. Festival. Um, and uh, it is just it is a snapshot because not only do we see I mean through the history of how this group is depicted in film, it's also a depiction of like the progression of that group in America mm-hmm. in the world and how LGBT people are viewed and filmed and discussed and allowed to express or not express their fullness. Um, and, uh, and I think that it came out the exact right time because it was after that, mm-hmm. that like we were, we started to be able to have these kinds of movies that we're talking about. It's right. no coincidence that this came out in 1996. And then as recently as that same year, 
suddenly there are these films that you yeah. and I were watching and being like, oh, that's like a realistic depiction. Like, I connect with this. This is real. Yeah. I buy this. Um, so The Cellular Closet is is just one of the most, like out of anything I've said, this is a must-watch essential for any queer person. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. So educational. Yeah. I think that even even what you think you know, you'll you'll definitely gain a lot from this movie. Yeah, and so many great people. And Shirley MacLaine is also in it. She talks about right, you yeah. know, that scene. You mm-hmm. know, she talks about like the way she feels about it now. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the stories, oh, it's just must watch. Um, and that is a wrap. If you uh, if you want to tell us about your movies, you can find our Facebook mm-hmm. page um, and let us know what, what we uh, what was important to you. So the closet is also on streaming services. Oh yes, to sorry, rent also... or purchase. Um, thank you so much for listening. Happy um, Pride. Happy Pride. Uh, be sure to subscribe if you enjoy the podcast. You can find Jason on Twitter at Excess Faggage. Because hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that. <laughs> mm. And I'm at Fight Balance. Uh, once again, happy Pride and thank you. Bye guys. Bye bye. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end. That's amazing. There, there goes, goes the, the binge. binge.